This is Pastoring Out Loud, a podcast for Bethlehem Baptist Church's South Campus in Lakeville, Minnesota. If you're interested in learning more about our church, go to Bethlehem.church forward slash south. If you're interested in learning more about doodles, like Labradoodles. Labradoodles? Is that what you're looking at on your phone, Dave? What are you looking at? Variety of dogs. <laughs> Variety of dogs. He found an ar- a, uh, a augmented reality app that lets you like project through your camera what a Labradoodle or a or a poodle would look like in your like in your room. It's really well, perhaps a sign of the fall uh, that our lead pastor is wrapped up in. Today we're talking. Oh, ta- oh I don't have any random. Hey, yeah. What's your favorite dog breed, Dave? Do you have favorite dog breeds? I do. Uh, or are you a cat person? No, uh, golden <laughs> caused some consternation at a recent elder wife gathering because some of them are cat people, and my true. comments a few weeks ago in the sermon it's were true. upsetting. Um, I am a golden retriever guy, so I had a golden retriever I got when I was probably nine that actually uh, was like one of my best friends and slept with me in my room in my bed with me until I was about 19. That's cute. Thanks. Nick, uh, I'm just, that's that's great. I know, it's a lot to take in. It's not, it's fine. Nine to 19. Nick, are you a dog person? I love dogs. Are you a cat person? No. You're not a cat person at no. all? No. Okay. Uh, I think Dave just told Ethan to cut the intro out. <laughs> no, I, I said, no, I said, at this point, we have lost people on this podcast. We've gone from After that, intro. that introduction to me talking about augmented dogs and sleeping with my dogs and for 10 years. Yeah. What's your favorite dog breed, Nick? I, oh, my gosh. I would say favorite, if you don't have. Yeah, lab. A lab. You're a lab guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Specifically, chocolate labs. That's great. Well, I would have had you as a golden lab guy. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't particularly like day. chocolate labs, but if there was a laboratory where they were doing like had chocolate, I would be all about that. We're uh, continuing our conversation about Calvinism uh, and the sovereignty of God. The second part. So the last part we talked Somehow generally about God has been sovereign over this podcast so far. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. God has been sovereign. I don't understand it. Yeah, it's, it's fine. Um, so we're talking about the sovereignty of God, broadly speaking. And now uh, this episode, we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God over the salvation of man, or for you theolo- theologians out there uh, in terms of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Um, is sovereign is, I'm tired guys. Is God sovereign over the salvation of men and women? Yes. Yes, he is. And why do we believe that Nick? Because of the Bible. (laughs) Yes. We believe that God is the one from beginning to end who is the giver of Faith he does that through regeneration, which he causes by his Holy Spirit. And so from start to finish, our our uh, salvation is of God. We believe that. Okay. Dave, does the elder affirmation of faith say anything about the salvation of men and women, mankind, uh, and God's sovereignty? Yeah, I just pulled it up here. So it's uh, 3.3. 
It says, We believe that God's election is an unconditional act of free grace, which was given through his Son Christ Jesus before the world began. By this act, God chose, before the foundation of the world, those who would be delivered from bondage to sin and brought to repentance and saving faith in his Son Christ Jesus. Is that controversial? I, I mean, I suppose it, it's not controversial around here, but I, I'd say that eternal election uh, is, is controversial in general yeah. as a doctrine. Yeah. Um, so, Nick, are there, and you said it's from the Bible mm-hmm. that we uh, assert that this is true, that the election of God over individuals mm-hmm. is actually what determines whether or not they will come to faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, where in the Bible do we find that? Yeah, so I think that there's several texts that we could point to. Uh, one of them is Ephesians chapter 1, where it talks about God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to what? According to our, you know, goodness, according to what we would do? No, it says according to the purpose of his will. Okay. So that's one of them that we would that we would go to. So are, are there alternative understandings of that text or this doctrine that uh, fall outside the realm of, you know, this is about individuals? And salvation, like how do how do other maybe people that disagree with us, still Christians but disagree with us, handle the doctrine of election? Would they say that it is, um, you know, so the way that you read it, the way you interpret it, and certainly the way we all interpret that is, mm-hmm. it's about the salvation of of those who would believe in Christ, individuals, and that that salvation, chapter later in Ephesians two, is by grace through faith, which is the gift of God. Mm-hmm. So, okay, uh, that, that sounds like individuals, but are there other lenses over which people think about election? Well, there's a couple other ways. There'd be some people that would talk about God just kind of making happen what he already foreknew. And so they would talk about God knows everything and he knows everything that's going to happen and then he, he brings that to being by his election. That'd be one way to talk about it. There'd be others that would talk about more of a corporate election, that God chose a people in Christ, and that Christ is really the plan, and then that's 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 his choosing, and then all who all who receive that are by default his elect, because um, he's choosing them in Christ as kind of a corporate reality. So those would be the other the other places people would go. Oh, that's good. Um, so and. You know, while we would disagree at those viewpoints, we certainly could, would say, you know, other Christians hold varieties of viewpoints about the election of God. Are there other mm-hmm. big texts that we go to thinking about election and how God, um, you know, in his before, like even creating, thinking about he has elected, he's chosen a people for himself. Other big texts that come to mind? Yeah, another one that comes to my mind is Romans 9. Where, That's a big one. Yeah, <clears throat> where Paul just says, you know, he says that, why, you know, he's defending God's righteousness, basically. Why has, why has Israel failed to obtain the promise of accepting Christ? Um, 
and he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed, um, for, not who all, for all who are descended from Israel do not belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because, through, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then he says, um, where is it? For as it is written, Jacob as I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So he talks about even before Jacob and Esau were born, he had chosen Jacob. Not based on anything that they would do, but just because that was his will. That's good. I want to add one that it's become one of my favorite over the years, and you'll love it, Daniel. It's in Revelation. Um, It's in Revelation 13. It's talking about the beast, and this beast is uttering blasphemies. He's blaspheming his name. He's allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. That's uh, Revelation 13, 6 and 7. Authority was given this beast over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, except there's one people that will not worship it. And then it says, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world Mm -hmm. in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So that's saying this this beast is going to be able to deceive and rule and get the whole world to worship this. uh, We could talk more about what the beast is, but that's not why we're here. But there's going to be this people who before the foundation of the world, these individuals have had their names written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Right. And so I think I think that would be a place where we go and say, before the foundation of the world, there are names <laughs> written in a book of life, and they're gonna be they're gonna belong to God yep. and not give in to this other worship. Yep, yep. Yeah, so there's different spots where a book of life, other things like that are mentioned. You can get poetry like know, David saying, don't blot me out of your book, other things like that. And then the New Testament takes that kind of language and seems to put it much more in like a, this is a fixed thing determined by God Mm -hmm. that coming and going, thinking about it as we see it, you know, we're not entirely sure. In fact, we really aren't sure who the elect are, but God knows who they are. And we can only see really the fruit of lives. Um, there is, I can't remember if it's, is it Spurgeon's, uh, or maybe it's, uh, Whitfield's somebody's, um, you know, tombstone, you know, the here lies such and such. I think it's Whitfield here lies George Whitfield. The day will reveal what sort of man he was. So it's leaving all of this up in the hands of God to save those who he elects. And it's, not entirely penetrable by us, but we can say this is what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what it looks like. It's part of what church membership is, is uh, as best we can tell, you're a believer in Jesus. And we would say as elders at, at Bethlehem South that behind all of that, all the layers all the way back is God's um, electing foreknowledge. Um, I mean, is that First Peter 1? Is that a, another text that lines up here? Maybe it's First Peter 2. I'll look for it real fast here. Um, Christ was foreknown. This is First Peter one twenty. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And then, if you compare that with earlier, uh, when um, 
Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter, is talking about what foreknowledge is. Um, he really clearly says in First Peter one two um, that uh, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in one one, and why are they elect? They're, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So how was Christ foreknown? Mm-hmm. Like, was God just aware of information about him? No. Like, that was, the, the Trinitarian reality is so much deeper than that. I think we have to then take um, that kind of mm-hmm. eternality and eternity past and say, mm-hmm. together with these other texts you guys have mentioned, God's foreknowledge of his people is an electing foreknowledge. And I think you can make the case from the word, if you're actually going to trace it back, through the Old Testament into the New, that this idea of knowledge and knowing is the idea of like an intimate relationship. It's not just an awareness of the facts, but it has relational intimacy uh, in mind when it's being talked about. Mm -hmm. So I think think a fair way to talk about it would be, you know, to be foreknown by God is to be foreloved by God as a a part of his people. Mm -hmm. And I think that becomes clear in another text like Romans eight twenty nine, um, where yeah. it says, "For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son." And that foreknowing there, you know, that's not the the object of the knowledge isn't an action. So it's not God saying, "I'm looking down the corridor of time and seeing who's going to choose me." Mm-hmm. It says, "Those whom he foreknew." So the object of the knowledge is the person. Right. And it, God knew them. And then it's, it goes on to say, then what shall separate us from the love of God? Right. And That's so right. the tie right. is right there. That yeah. God's foreknowledge means that nothing will separate us from that loving knowing. Right. And even in that passage, you have what theologians call the golden chain. Right. Yep. That the the very clear point of the author of Paul is... Everyone who's foreknown this way gets to glory. Yep. Every single person. Those yep. whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Yeah. No one drops out. Yeah. Yeah. The gospel and the story of Jesus and what his blood purchases is the totality of our salvation mm. justification, sanctification, glorification. So shifting gears a little bit, let's talk in systematic theology categories. So we talked about this a little bit in the last episode. The Synod of Dort was the way that um, different, um, you know, Presbyterian groups, Lutheran groups, man, I can't remember Synod of Dort. My brain is so tired. Uh, I think Lutheran groups responded to kind of uh, Jacob Arminius and his assertions. And from that flowed what, is sometimes called the five points of Calvinism. Various acronyms get used for it. Um, I'm just going to like roll through these and you guys give me quick justification scripturally or just thoughts about it. So uh, total depravity. What is that doctrine about and what are some texts? Total depravity uh, does not mean we are as, that every person as sinful as they ever could be. What it means is that our our nature is corrupted by sin, and because our nature is corrupted by sin, every person will sin actively. Um, So you could go to Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me, 
uh, just talking about the, the nature of sin. We've already seen it, right, in, even in the preaching series in Genesis 3, the sinfulness passed on and spreading. You could go to Romans uh, 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, so those would be some places to start. Yeah, and total depravity means that it's impossible for us yep. to choose God on our own because we're dead in our sin. So we are totally sinful in our nature. And so you mentioned Romans 3. If you just back up even a little bit earlier in that chapter, Paul quotes the Old Testament, says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one. It says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So that's a pretty sweeping statement about the condition of man's heart. Same idea in Ephesians 2. Right. Right. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Mm -hmm. You're by nature children of wrath as all the rest. Mm -hmm. Good. So uh, when depravity implies such radical inability... Um, I mean, the way that the scriptural texts take this off, Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, mm-hmm. they take up the language of deadness, not just sickness, mm-hmm. but the, the kind of inability that like a corpse implies. Mm-hmm. And therefore, um, one is not able to make their way back to God short of um, yeah, him unconditionally electing, which is the next point in that, which we really just talked about. Mm-hmm. We just talked about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there aren't con- preconditions upon God's election. So some other, certainly denominations and Christian uh, Christians that hold to other creeds and confessions would say um, there are conditions upon God's election um, in different ways. And we would just say that if it's happening before anything has happened, um, before the foundation of the world even, then it has to be without condition um, in that sense. So first, total depravity. Second, unconditional election. Third, what is sometimes called, well, in the in the normal acronym, limited atonement. And this is one that a lot of people just like, whoa, hold up. What's, what's, what's this? What does limited atonement mean? Yeah, so <clears throat> limited atonement is the, the idea that Christ... Um, died not only to give a legitimate bona fide offer of the gospel to all people, so like John 3.16, you know, um, that's true, right? You know, um, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so we say yes, and that, that offer is given to all people. But not only did he die to that for that, but he died more specifically for the elect, those that he has unconditionally elected, and purchased their redemption, specifically. Um, And so he died for the world in a general way, but he died for the elect in a specific saving way, in such a way that he secured their redemption, right? Right. So it's not just an offer, but he secured it for the elect. So in that way, not that the power of the atonement is limited. You know, that's not what limited means there. It means the um, purchasing infallibly those who will be saved in, in a limited, limited to the elect. So yeah, that's that, how, that's yep. what it means. Yeah. That God's, that, a, that uh, a central purpose in the atonement 
is wrapped up in God's particular people whom he elected. Right. Sometimes yeah. it's called not limited atonement, but particular redemption, yeah. which is a little bit not as weird sounding. <laughs> um, but then that, yeah. it messes up the acronym. It does. It does. 2PIP. Yep. Yeah. 2PIP doesn't roll off the tongue quite the way, and it's a nonsense word. Yep. Um, anything you add about limited atonement? No, I think you got it. And then, I mean, we would go to texts where, like, it says that Jesus died, laid down his life for his friends, right? Right. You know, for a specific people. Um, And we, you know, the new covenant language in his blood has a particular people in mind. Um, So we would go to texts like that. Yeah. So not at all to deny that, again, like, can we know for whom Christ died in that way? No. So we indiscriminately, really indiscriminately, mm-hmm. share the gospel, trust that the results are up to God. And that's in part because of the next point, irresistible grace. That God went, so uh, can God's grace be resisted like in any in any sense? Yes. Oh, it can. Whoa. Yeah. So yeah. is irresistible grace a bad point? <laughs> thanks, that, for, thanks for setting that up, Daniel. Hey, you're welcome. <laughs> glad so, you asked. Yeah, glad you asked. Uh, what, what? How would you? So, if if God's grace in this way is irresistible, mm-hmm. in what other ways would we say? Oh, you can resist yeah. God's. And grace. I would just say, in our sinfulness, we resist God and His grace all the time. You know, we every time that we <laughs> we sin, we're resisting God, um, and you know the the grace that He would have for us if we didn't sin. Um, we resist his leading. You know, sometimes you feel conviction and you're like, I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> and so you push it away, right? And that's not good, but, you know, we have to admit that sometimes we do that in our sinfulness. Irresistible grace just means that when God wants his grace to be irresistible, <laughs> then we can't resist it. Um, and particularly in salvation, when God says, let there be light in your heart, or let there be life, and says, you know, like Lazarus, come forth, then it happens. So he is the one that gives us grace to, and and, and really we're ta- what we're talking about here in Irresistible Grace is regeneration, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So God reaching in, you know, as it were, and changing our heart of stone into a heart of flesh, making us alive, giving us eyes to see. There are a variety of ways that the Bible talks about the analogy of regen- the reality of regeneration. Um, but when he does that, then all of a sudden we see Jesus for who he is. And once you see, you can't not see. <laughs> yep. You know, once you're alive, you're, you're alive. Yeah. Um, and so I think about, you know, 2 Corinthians 4, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in your hearts to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Good, yeah. I think of John 3 with Nicodemus, and Jesus says, you can't be born again unless you see the kingdom of God. And then he says, that happens by the Spirit. And he goes on to say, and the wind, the Spirit, blows where it wishes. It's irresistible. You can't control it. Right. And that's how you, you're regenerated and you, you see. You see what's real. Good, good. Then the last point is perseverance of the saints, which is, I mean, what, is, what does that teach? That uh, uh, the saints must persevere? Is that what it says? Yes, you're right. Dave is nodding his head. And does it also say that the saints will persevere? Like, definitely. Yes. Yes, you're right, Nick. 
good job. It says both <laughs> that we must persevere because God grants us grace and that we will, and that that is actually a mark of ultimately how you can tell what is, I mean, as best as we can tell who is truly Christ and who is not, um, that there is a category we have for, it looks like you were in and then you fall away. So well, it what says are, they went out from us because they were not of us. Right, right. So what are some texts? Well, there's one. You just said it. Mm-hmm. Um, what are what are some others? Yeah, as far as the need to endure, I think Colossians 1 is helpful. That's what I was thinking. You know, it says, uh, Colossians one twenty one. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So that would be the that would be the call to continue. I mean, that where we see maybe some that don't comp- continue. I'm thinking of like Hebrews six, um, yeah. where they've they've tasted and they've partaken and they've they've fallen away. Um, from this good news, you know, then then the text where where we're I think assured that that won't happen is uh, you know where Jesus says no one can snatch you right out of my out of my father's well, hand. Yeah. I would say yeah. that even yeah. in Luke or not Luke six, <laughs> I think the I think the author of Hebrews is probably Luke. That's another podcast for another time. But Hebrews, Hebrews six, six. Yeah. has at the end of it, like mm-hmm. the author of Hebrews gives you a clue about what he's thinking about because he says. Mm-hmm. Um, Hebrews 6, 4, it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own arm, holding them up to contempt. Like that sounds like, oh, wow, look at this. This is like somebody that was genuinely in and then they're not. But look at where he goes. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The author of Hebrews has a category for like, it looks like this, it looks like this, it looks like this, but I like, like you're falling away, but about you, my audience, I think this, you're not in that category of those kind. we trust better things. Or even Hebrews 10 uh, is the other big warning passage. Um, for if we go on sinning deliberately, this Hebrews ten twenty six. Mm-hmm. If we mm-hmm. go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge mm-hmm. of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Oh my! And then he goes down the very end. This is a whole big litany of like of like warn, warning, warning, warning. And then Hebrews ten thirty nine. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Like he's got a category for like. What it looks like is you were in and then you fell out. Mm-hmm. And then a category for, but those that are actually truly in, mm-hmm. like behind all of the the true, mm-hmm. but just what the, who is truly the spirits, they're going to actually make it yep. no matter what. And that's, that's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Yeah, that's right. And I would say that one of the, uh, the New Testament realities of that is just the, what we're talking about right now, these warnings in the Bible I think the way that they function when they're given to the church, which they are in Hebrews and they are in other places, is for those who are truly in Christ, the warnings serve as a wake-up and a return and a call back. And to those who aren't in Christ, they they just further harden or create further apathy. 
and, uh, and, and so they're real warnings, and yet for those in Christ, they will certainly endure. Yeah. Amen. Anything else you guys would say about the subject? Just that we know that it can be controversial, but we love them because, number one, they're in Scripture. Number two, they provide immense comfort and stability to know yep. that God is sovereign over these yeah. things. Amen. And so we hold them to be precious. Yeah. Amen. And you know, if you have questions about this or just in terms of thinking like, hey, we're pastoring the flock in a particular direction and all our cards are on the table for what we're doing, um, man, we want to talk to you. We want to talk more about how we see the free will of people working together with this big picture sovereignty of God. Um, we'd love to hear more from you and talk more about it. Guys, thanks for chatting about this today. Thanks. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do